I want you to know that uh, you didn't prohibit me from worshiping. But I came within a fraction of shouting just a minute ago. <laughs> I'm talking about a hooping kind of shout. Uh, the kind of shout that we would be accustomed to uh, giving uh, when uh, our son or daughter uh, would hit the game-winning shot. <laughs> that kind of shout. And that is good. I hope you recognize that as we sang uh, that trilogy of songs that there was a deliberate movement in that to bring us to the place that when we would and we would in supplication stop and pray and say, Jesus, keep me near the cross for all of those reasons. Adam, uh, thank you for drawing that second verse out for us as we uh, prayed for the lost. Um, I am grateful for uh, your attentiveness in that and helping that drive the course of our praying for the lost. Um, we've already had reports back. In fact, one of our, I forgot to turn my phone on silent, and earlier in the service, I had it turned down. Earlier in the service, I, it was ringing. It was one of our partners in northern Ghana. I know I didn't listen to it. They were WhatsApping for me, and I had to get it silenced. Uh, but I'm sure they were reporting back about the service because we have been, uh, we pray together on Saturdays in preparation for their service and they pray for ours as well. If you have your copies of Scripture, turn to Matthew chapter 27. Jesus' cross. That's what we've been singing about today. In fact, the psalmist today opened up with saying, Remember your mercy. Remember your steadfast love. That's what the psalmist was asking God to do. Don't remember my sins. Remember your mercy and your grace. That's the only hope I have. Well, I want you to know that we are at the chapter in Matthew where God says, I have not forgotten. I've not forgotten. I have not forgotten my mercy. I've not forgotten my word. I've not forgotten my promise. That's what he is shouting there when we see that display of the cross and all of those things coming together. So we have come to the chapter that gives the account of what Jesus has been telling his disciples what happened to him. The Son of Man, we recalled it last week, Chapter 26 and verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover's coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. To be crucified. I couldn't help whenever I was dealing with this text to be reminded of an earlier time in Matthew's Gospel back in chapter 16. Accessory of Philippi. Peter made what is known as this great confession when Jesus asked two questions. He said, who do people say the Son of Man is? And then after they responded, He turned 
and said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want you to hold on to that. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus speaking some profound words that regarding Peter and the church, we hear this next. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And yet, we are here in Matthew 27, and everything that Jesus said is happening. It's happening. We saw last week that Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was seized and taken into custody by the high priest. He was made to endure this staged and kind of mock trial where false witnesses were brought in to testify. It was a complete shamble. They were unable to even get two or three witnesses to get their lives straight to justify what they were wanting to do. And all the while, Jesus remained silent. We'll see this silence continue all the way through the course of chapter 27. And we should expect it. What did Isaiah say? He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears are silent, so he opened not his mouth. He only speaks when it is absolutely necessary to speak. And then we looked at last week, it came to this big theological question that was brought on by the chief priest. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then finally Jesus breaks silence. And He does so for their benefit, not for His defense. He said, you've said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, you stated correctly. You've seen displays of my power. You've witnessed healings, exorcisms, resurrections, great miracles of feedings, and you've heard my teachings. You've testified to this truth. And you will come to know that what you say is true because when you see me again, I'll be coming on the clouds and I will rule the kingdom I'm establishing. That's what he was saying. But first, you must do what you have been ordained to do he doesn't say that exactly that way but he does so in so many words doesn't he all along he has been saying what must be done and we recall what john records jesus having said i'm the good shepherd 
I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They'll listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And no one takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. And I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Why even mention this? At every turn in the course of this text, we run headlong into two things. The wickedness of man and the sovereignty of God. If you don't see anything else in chapter 27, see the wickedness of man and the sovereignty of God. And in God's sovereignty, all of these things that we have sung about this morning, the grace of God, the power of God, the mercy of God, the refuge of God, the care of God, all of these things come full fold in this chapter. Matthew has been pointing us to this place. Wickedness. Greater and lesser throughout the chapter. The sinfulness of humanity is on display. It's there. It is wide open for us to see. And the sovereignty of God. Every act, every movement from the beginning had been ordained and was being directed by God. This should speak something to us today about God and His grace. And all pointing to why this day, that day, had to come. I hope you don't miss that. Chapter 27 and verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. The long night had ended. Morning finally arrived. And our text gives us the verdict of this fumbled trial we spoke of. Jesus confirmed that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they determined from that that he was guilty of blasphemy. That's what they determined. Already the beginning of looking at the cross is foolishness. What else could they do to justify the evil in their hearts? You ever thought about that? Jesus says, you said so. They've had all of this witness given in His miracles, in the healings, in His teaching, and all that He's done. What else are they going to do to justify the evil in their hearts? If they acknowledge all the evidence that He provided in the last three years of His ministry, they would have repented and worshipped Him or what? Or kill Him. 
That's all that's left. Do away with him. They deliver him to Pilate. The Roman perfect, the governor that had been in place. He was actually a military leader. He had been put there to keep, to, to keep peace. He meted out Rome's rule and involvement there and took care of those things. He, he acted uh, in every way as the full authority of that area unless something had to go to Rome. And that's who they deliver him to. They're under Roman rule. They couldn't crucify him. They could kill him. They couldn't crucify him. We already know they could have killed him. We read through the Gospels. He's at a cliff. And they're getting ready to what? Throw him over the cliff. And, and he, he gets away from them. They could have stoned him. In fact, they started to stone him one time. And he got away. They could kill him. They could have hired an assassin to take him out and do away with their threat. What they couldn't do, they could not crucify him. And he had said that he was going to be what? Crucified. You see the sovereignty of God in that? Look at verses 3 through 10. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. The chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel, bought with it the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of a man on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Don't you find it interesting that Matthew interrupts this story of Jesus to tell us about Judas? He's the only gospel writer that mentions this. It's interesting that he mentions Judas and and. The fact that Judas went back. When did he go back to the religious leaders to confess the sin? Well, at least in Matthew's account, which is the only one that we have, it comes in conjunction after Jesus confirms that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. After this mock trial, after it is clear that there is no other evidence, after it is clear to Judas, man, what have I done? But he comes and he wants to undo what he's done. I want you to hear that. He wants to undo what he's done. There's something important to note here. Our sin cannot be put back in the bottle. Do you hear that? Our sin cannot be put back in the bottle. The clock can't rewind. 
Judas had no means to deal with his sin. It was out of the bottle. It couldn't be put back in. Man couldn't help him deal with it. He was there before the religious leaders. Have you ever paid attention to that? He came to the religious leaders, the chief priests, the people who were there to intercede on behalf of sinful man. And they couldn't do a thing for him. They could do nothing for him to help him with his sin. The high priest had no absolution for Judas' sin. Apart from Christ, he had no hope. His suicide screams to the fact that our sin demands that we need Jesus. Judas needed what Jesus was getting ready to do. But as do all unrepentant, he cut himself off from Jesus. Please don't miss this. Judas' act of betrayal was wicked. His name, his kiss of betrayal, his suicide, they all mark him in history. But we shouldn't judge it. We can't judge it. Because if we do, we're judging all the unrepentant. And just be reminded, when we prayed just a moment ago for the lost, we are praying for those who are unrepentant at this moment. And you know what? Their end is Judas's end. It, they may not take their life, but their end is the same. It is an eternity separated from God. And all along, Matthew is screaming for us to pay attention to the significance of this day and this act. Look in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Silence. He gave them no answer. Not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. They had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, oh, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all shouted, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Jesus was brought before Pilate. Remember the Jews asked the big theological question? Well, Pilate asked the big political question. He's not concerned about their religion. 
As long as their religion does not bother him, he's okay with that. As long as it doesn't threaten Rome, he's okay with that. But he does have a responsibility here. He has a responsibility to find out what has this man done. Well, John chapter 18 and verses 28 and following, uh, they tell us that the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate without an accusation. We looked at that when we were studying John. They said, just take our word for it when they brought him. They said, just take our word for it. If he wasn't bad enough for us to bring him here, we wouldn't have brought him here. Well, what's Pilate going to do with that? He can't do anything with that. So they had no charge for him at that time. And so they're thinking, they have thought through this apparently. They know that he doesn't care anything about their religion. So they have to present him in some way that he is a threat to Rome. In Luke chapter 23, 1 through 5 tells us this, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, as we just heard, Are you king of the Jews? Luke says the same thing as Matthew. You said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Have you caught it? He's the Messiah, and He is King of the Jews. What has Matthew been arguing from the opening line of his gospel? That he is the Messiah King. He is the one who is promised. He is the one who has come to save his people from their sins. That's what he's been arguing. And in the trials, both questions are asked. The Jews say, are you the Messiah? You've said so. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so. Both of them. Pilate doesn't feel like he's any threat to Rome. Was Jesus a threat to Rome? Think about that for just a minute. Was he a threat to Rome? Rod, I see you smile. The answer is yes, he was a threat to Rome. He was a threat to every world power and every leader. Jesus ordained every world power and every leader. He had ordained that Pilate serve in his current capacity there in Palestine, which would have been the armpit of the Roman Empire, by the way. That was the, Pilate was not in a place of prestige. He was about as far away from Rome as you could get. And everyone knows that if you want to be prominent, the closer you get to Rome, the more prominent you are. And he is as far out as he can be. But the one that he is standing before has placed him there. The one he is holding trial over has placed him there. And he stood there in the presence of the greatest power in all the universe. Was he a threat? Without question, he was. 
Look in verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. His blood be on me. His blood be on us and our children. He's the Messiah and He's the King of the Jews. Yet the Jews are willing to go to any length to see God destroyed. Don't miss this. They want God dead. Why? Because God stands as a threat to them in their own lives. You know why today so many who call themselves believers and the church has reduced the gospel to things that are appealing to people to make them feel better about themselves? They feel threatened by God. They are threatened by the gospel. So what do they do? They kill God in a real soft way so that now God can become what that person needs God to become to make them happy and to fulfill them. It's the same as saying, let His blood be on me and my children. They're quiet. They're quiet. We are. Until it threatens our rule and then we become very vocal. And the Jews did become vocal. And finally Pilate gave in. He said, I, I, I find no fault in this man. I'm innocent. I'm innocent of this man's blood. And the people said, let his blood be on us and our children. They had no idea how profoundly prophetic this statement was. Of course, once we get what we want, we will soon forget the things we said to get them. If you don't believe it, look over in Acts chapter 5. What happens there? Well, the apostles were arrested and put into public prison. And for those who may not know what happens in Acts after Jesus' death, after His resurrection, after His ascension, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, the apostles are preaching the gospel and are pointing out to the religious leaders and all who will listen that this man whom you've crucified is the resurrected Christ. And there is salvation in Him and in Him alone. They're put in prison. The Scripture tells us but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to uh, the people all the words of life. And the next day, uh, the folks who put him in prison, the council, the same group of religious people that are shouting for him, for Jesus to be crucified, this same group of people are here and they send to the prison to get the apostles. The only problem is, whenever they go to the prison to get the apostles, the prison is empty. The doors are still locked. The angel opened and closed those. 
The doors are still locked and they're not there. And then they get word. They're in the temple doing exactly what the angel of the Lord told them to do. They're in the temple preaching the words of life. So they send for them and they bring them back. And here's what, they, here's what the apostles heard. We strictly charged you not to teach in His name, yet here you are, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That's what they say. Yeah, well that's what you said you wanted. It's on you. Forget my laugh and my smirk. The fact is, His blood is on all of us in this sense. We have all sinned. That is at least part of what Matthew is trying to help us see. He has come to save His people from their sin. If you're here and you're a believer... Your sin brought about the shedding of His blood. If you're here today and you've not trusted Christ and you trust Him, your sin is the reason that He shed His blood. And had He not shed His blood, the blood that we sang about earlier, when we were singing about the power of the cross and the power of the blood that is flowing from that cross, had that not taken place, you would have no hope. I would have no hope. No, His blood is on all of us. He's come to save His people. And all throughout that day, this sin is being displayed in ways to show us the condition of the human heart. His blood be on me. And then don't try to put His blood on me. I'm innocent. No, you're not. None of us are. And the words of Isaiah echo that again. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way doesn't stop there though does it look in verse 27 everyone has a turn at Jesus okay everyone has a turn at Jesus then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on his head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. 
But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. And we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The spew of profaning and mocking King Jesus did not stop with shouting crucify him. No, everyone had his turn. His execution was public. And there's a reason for that. We said earlier the religious could have hired a hit man taking him out in the quiet of night. But that wasn't God's plan because even, in, even his death was to be public and stand as a testimony to all of creation for all to see and for all of us to see here today the height of wickedness and the power and mercy of God. The soldiers mocked him as a king. How better to do that? Put a robe on him. Give him a crown. Hand him a reed as a scepter. Mock at him. Make fun of him. Then you strip it off and take the reed and beat him with it. He said he was a king. Let's just see what kind of king he is. Look at the irony of verse 39. And those who pass by, these are folks who had nothing to do with what was taking place in Jerusalem. These were just folks that were passing by, still streaming into Jerusalem. It's Passover. Traffic is going by. They're on a hill. Certainly they're going to run and watch an execution, aren't they? You know what sinful people do? Long to see other people suffer? That's the reason they were on public display anyway. To mock them, to ridicule them, to shame them. And they're coming by. And what do they do? And they're just wagging their heads. You get that? Just their whole body language is disrespectful. They don't even come up and approach this hill where these crosses are and these men are suffering and dying. They don't come up there with respect. That's not what they've come for. They've come to lash out. And they fall in suit with everybody else that has been said. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. This is Him, the King. 
come down, save yourself. That was the charge, wasn't it? Was displayed over, over the cross. That was what was displayed. A king, you're my king. Are you, are you serious? My king's being crucified? Are you really serious? They do at least address him directly. You, the king of the Jews, you, my king. Chief priests don't even do that. He says he's the son of God. They don't even look at him and say you. What do they do? They continue to mock. Why? We will fight God to the end. And the lost will fight God to the end until they have exhausted themselves in seeking to destroy God. Matthew is trying to help us see there is no goodness in man. There is no goodness in man. Even when God is doing God's work to save, man hates God to the end. Even the robbers. And I, we know that one of the robbers repented and turned to him. But Matthew's not wrong here. Even at this point in time, both of the robbers are mocking him. I don't know what transpired during the course of that time. Something, someone, God, quickened the heart of one of the robbers. To say, forgive me, you don't deserve this. I do. Isn't that the word of the lost man who comes to Christ? Forgive me, you didn't deserve that. I do. But you have done it for me. Look in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachnia, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said this man is calling Elijah and one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus cries out and everyone can hear and God in His silence shouts something else. God is silent and the Son of God cries out. Think about that for a moment. Jesus cries out my God, my God, why 
have you forsaken me? Was he just recalling Psalm 22? No. God had turned his back on him. And in that moment and in those moments through the course of that, the wrath of God was being poured out on him. And he was suffering. Suffering at a level that no one has ever known. Yes, the robbers were being crucified. Feeling the similar effects of the devastation to their human bodies. But God had turned His back on His Son and was silent as His wrath was being poured down upon Him in full force. God shouts in His silence and Jesus cries what the redeemed will never utter. The redeemed will never utter, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why? Because in God's silence on Christ and in His wrath, He was saying, I remember my word. I remember what I told Satan when I judged him. I remember what I told Eve when I spoke to her about the seed who would come. I remembered that I told you that I would blot out your transgressions and they would be removed from you as far as the east is from the west. I remember that I am a merciful and a gracious God. I remember that I am long-suffering and that my steadfast love is forever. Turn to Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. This, in the midst of this emotionally, this emotional anguish that we feel when we read this chapter, here is why the cross. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, speaking of Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Here's why. Don't get this wrong. Here's why. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time 
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you get it? We could sit here for hours and talk about the meaning of the cross. But I want us to conclude with these three things. I pray that they seize your mind and your heart and mind. The cross means that God is serious about sin. The cross means that God is serious about redemption. And the cross means that God is serious about Himself. His righteousness, His justice, His grace, His love, His promise, and His wrath. Please hear this. Believer, worship God today. Oh my goodness. I just I melted here before the cross. Unbeliever, friend, please take notice of the cross. It is the center piece of human history not just for now but forever and it is the center piece of your life get under it let the gushing blood flow over you and cleanse you or stand back and ridicule it One will bring life, and the other the other well, the other means eternal death.